0: I'm Lonnie Diane rich and this is How Story Works. Oh my God, perfectionism, right? Like, it is such a struggle for everyone. Let me tell you, this is the second time I am recording this podcast. um, Because the first version was unlistenable to me. I record in a tiny little closet in a tiny little apartment because that way I don't have to be like right super up on my mic the way that I used to have to be when I was in like a bigger room that didn't have as much soft stuff, whatever. If you're recording anything, go in your closet. It's amazing. Anyway, um, so now I record in the closet and yesterday... It was the first time that I have recorded a podcast by myself since the last time I did this for How Story Works, which I want to say was like 2018, maybe, Um, and coming back and being by myself and just talking to you. Uh, it was kind of like a, a change, right? I've been working with co-hosts this whole time because I like having somebody to talk to. So anyway, I was listening to it and part of it was my energy was just so frenetic. I was like this and this and this and this because I didn't I didn't script anything. I just like had sort of notes and I wandered off topic as I'm doing now because this opening I don't know if you can guess, not scripted. So I was editing it and I was like, oh, first of all, my energy is like way too much. Like even for me as a listener, I was like, oh, take it down just a little bit. You know, it's a lot to have this in my ears, you know. Um, and, uh, and then I was listening to it and I also had breath sounds. Breath sounds the whole reason why I'm recording my closet is so that I can have my microphone far enough away from my face that breath sounds are not a thing. So that's what all of this is. Um, and that's what we're doing. <laughs> and I'm back. Hi, everybody. Uh, I just want you to know that um, I am considering you, you personally, you listening to this to be my co-host. Right. Um, You're having thoughts. You're having things like that. I will be talking about. i gonna be talking about stuff and you're going to be having thoughts about it. That's awesome. I love that. Please share it with me. Email me Lonnie at LonnieDineRich.com. Send me a uh, message using the voice memo on your phone. Go in your closet and record it. You'll see it's fucking amazing. Um, and, uh, and I would love to hear all of that. But anyway, let me go into my now scripted opening <laughs> of today's How Story Works episode. Hey, everyone. Wow. It's been a while since I've been behind the mic by myself. Bringing Dr. Kelly Jones into the conversation series was amazing. I'll tell you the truth. If she wasn't so busy, I'd still have her with me. I love working with her so much, and I am in a grief process, but, you know, her life is very full. She doesn't have time to podcast that she used to, so I'm sending her on with love and bringing the How Story Works podcast into a new phase, which is also exciting. You know how I love new things, right? So I'm going to use the first block of the new Just Me and You How Story Works episodes to bring you up to date, maybe share some personal stuff, how I'm doing with my writing, if there are any funny stories. I'm going to ask you how you're doing with your writing, that kind of thing. Um, The second half of the New How Story Works episodes uh, will be the topics of whatever that episode is. Uh, Today I'm doing a structural analysis, as promised, of the movie The Half of It, the Alice Wu movie that I love more every time I watch it. You know how some stories get better when you look at them closer? Yeah, this is one of those, at least for me. Uh, but for other episodes that we'll be doing in the future, I, I might do a Q&A. Uh, if you have a question you'd like me to answer, record it on your phone voice memo. Love that. Do it in your closet. It'll be amazing. Uh, make the question one minute or shorter, please, because it, it can't go too long. Um, and send it to lonnie at LonnieDineRich.com and I'll include it in the next, when I do a whole bunch of Q&As. It'd be so wonderful to hear from you guys. Oh my God, I love it. I love hearing from you guys. Um, For anyone who maybe wants a free, like basic writing consultation, uh, where I might give you feedback on a synopsis, or we just sit down for a half hour and answer whatever questions you've got, um, you can be a guest on the show. Uh, Absolutely. You are my co-host. So again, Reach out to Lonnie at LonnieDyneRich.com to find out more about that um, and let me know what you like to talk about. I'm also talking to different established writers um, about coming to guest on the show. and And what I want to do is like I, I've done a lot of crafty talk on how story works. I want to talk about how it feels to be a writer, how it feels to be a creative person. Um, and, and that kind of part of the experience, I think that there, um, there's a lot of unpacking that we all need to do about being a creative person in a capitalist world where your value is directly tied to your productivity and the money that you generate with that that productivity. Um, and I think that those are things that we could deconstruct a little bit. And I'm actually really excited about talking to writers about that. Um, so I'm going to be talking to my friends and be bringing people in um, and just kind of sitting down and having a conversation about the kinds of things that you usually don't hear writers talk about that much. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested in doing that. I think that's real crunchy, so I'm excited about that. Okay, so those are the ideas that I have. There will be other kinds of um, of How Story Works podcast episodes that we're going to be bringing in, um, but I want it to be kind of casual. I want it to be um, fun and interesting and deep and honest. So all of that means that, like, I'm not going to plan this out. At the end of this episode today, you are not going to hear me tell you what's coming in the next episode because I don't know yet. Um, but based on what inspiration hits, who I might have available to sit down and chat with, what questions y'all send me, um, all of that is going to contribute to what the next episode is. So it's going to be a lovely mystery. And I kind of like that. Um, the How Star Works podcast will be going out once a month from here on out. Uh, you can expect it on the fourth Monday of every month. God willing, and the creek don't rise, I'm going to do my best. Um, And if you have any requests, again, reach out to me, Lonnie at LonnieDianRich.com. Um, but I want to talk to you a little bit more about the history of the How Story Works podcast and how it's changing, of course again, right? Um, when I started this podcast, I was really looking for a place to collect and test the narrative theory I'd been developing in my college classroom. But some of the early episodes of this podcast are, pro- are like a little half-baked, you know, uh, because the theory wasn't fully cooked yet. It wasn't fully cooked until I finished my book, How Story Works, available on Amazon and Audible. Uh, so while I would stand by a Probably about 99% of the instruction I provided in those early episodes. Um, not, again, not all of it was a fully baked cookie. Like, And I absolutely acknowledge that. I was in the process doing this podcast is part of how I learned the things that I needed to learn to be able to create the book, right? Um, but that said, if you want the fully baked cookie, which I would recommend, with a simple narrative theory that you can put your back up against while creating the most possible space for your magic which, as we all know, because you've heard me say it before, is the purpose of craft, you're going to want to get the House Story Works book. It is 20 years of knowledge and experience in 145 pages, three hours, I think almost four hours on the Audible version. Um, and I stand by my claim. It is the only narrative craft book you really need. It applies equally to every genre and every form. It is essentially the sourdough starter of narrative. The whole point of this book is so that you can get out of your own way and let your magic dance on a stage that is well-built. The stage is the craft part. The stage is what I teach you how to build. And then you can let your magic dance on it. That's what this is all about. And I cannot tell you enough, this is the book that I wanted to have when I started writing and could not find. And it took me 20 years to write it. So I, you know, I'm telling you now, available on Amazon Audible. Go grab it if you haven't already. Okay, so another thing about the history of the How Story Works podcast, and I realize as I say this, that i am likely the only one who cares about any of this but I have like I'm I'm an organizational type. I like to organize things. I like to categorize things. I like to know where they are. Um, you'd think my house would be neater with that being who I am, but you know, it's it's always a struggle between like time and and preferences, you know what I'm saying? But anyway, so I started out <laughs> with House Story Works, just numbering the episodes, right? You know? Um, and that was great. Like the House Story Works the first, I of not 39, 40 episodes are like that original, you know, six minute instruction kind of um of podcast. And then uh, it took a long hiatus, as some of you may remember. And then we came back with How Story Works Conversations, which was kind of a different podcast. But I didn't want to put it in a different feed because it was still How Story Works. We're still talking about the same theory. It's just in a different format where I actually had a co-host, my beloved best friend, Dr. Kelly Jones. And that was wonderful. And we did, you know, over I don't know, three years, like it took us forever to do it because I was still working on the theory for my book. Um, but it was, uh, it was those three C's. Seasons, right. And and the thing is, because it was a different uh, podcast style, uh, but kind of the same, like I left it in the same podcast feed. Uh, but then I called it How Story Works Conversations season one, How Story Works Conversations season two. And that was great. And then I moved to a podcast host that I love. Transistor.fm. They're not paying for this endorsement. They're amazing. I love them. Um, but I went there and they they had the ability for me to like organize, right? Organize, organize everything in seasons. But I had to call the first chunk of the House Story Works podcast, the one that I did by myself, the original, you know, short instruction snippets uh, as season one. And so then I did season two of how story works the podcast was then season one of how story works conversations you could see how this is throwing off the whole vibe right um well okay for me nobody else nobody else cares nobody else cares Um, but I do. So, so that is, uh, what is happening with the numbering. If anybody notices that this new part starting with today of how story works, uh, is coming up as season five. Hey, you know what? Roll with it. It's all good. Everything's fine. Uh, no one cares, but me, no one cares, but me, no one cares, but me anyway, what's next? Oh yes. All the things I'm doing now. This is what's next. (laughs) Uh for podcasts, I have In the Gutter, a comics podcast that I do with superhero scholar Joshua Unry. You might remember him from Listen Up A-Holes, the Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast, uh, where he curates a list of comic book story arcs for me to read that he promises are all bangers all the time. And I I know this is my podcast, but I like literally cannot recommend this podcast enough. It has a very low listenership. I think just because like we haven't reached all the comic book people, and the people who don't read comics think that it's not for them, but it is. its it is. It is. Look, there's a bit of a jump to get into them, um, especially if you're not used to reading that kind of work. Um, But I have learned so much since I started reading comics. Comics are a storytelling form where efficiency and engagement are absolutely key. And if you are a writer and you haven't been reading comics, I think that you must. Um, You learn so much looking at it from a different angle. The artwork is incredible and the heavy lifting that it does. Um, Plus, like all the Story arcs on In the Gutter are great, even though, yeah, yeah, okay, those of you who are listening, I'm struggling a little to like Patsy Walker as a main character, but the story itself is really fun and I'm enjoying the artwork. There's a lot of things to enjoy about it. Um, so I completely recommend that. If you haven't gotten into comics, read along with us from season one of In the Gutter. We're in season two now. Um, I, I cannot tell you how much I recommend it and how much if you don't work in a form like comics, a visual form like comics, how it can help inform your visual work as a prose writer. Like uh, everybody should be reading comics. And speaking of everybody reading comics, My gateway drug, of course, was Sandman because of the endless podcast, the Sandman podcast that I'm doing with um, Elisa Quitney. Um, I cannot recommend enough. First of all, the source material, the Sandman comics are incredible. Um, Reading those comics is what gave me the appreciation for comics as a form. Um, And working with Elisa, who was an editor on the original Sandman series, has been an absolute joy. We were casual friends before this, but it's brought us a lot closer, and I'm just so grateful that the Sandman TV show was happening and she happened to reach out to me and say, hey, you want to do this thing? Because now I've gotten one of my best friends out of it. And I absolutely love that relationship, both personal and professional with her. So um definitely recommend that. Definitely recommend reading the source material along with both of those podcasts. And also the TV show on Netflix was awesome. So much fun. I've been really having a great time doing those. Um, and you know what's funny? As I, I diverge from my script for a minute, um, when I was listening and editing... The original version of this, like I told you, I, I was like, you know, take it down a notch, chill. Your energy's a little high. Um, and I realize now that even as I'm reading the script, I'm still up there. Like I still got frenetic energy. I think when I'm excited, this is just the way that I am. And I'm really, really super excited, uh, to be sharing all of this stuff with you. Um, so I apologize if it's early in the morning or super late at night. Depending on when your main hours are, (laughs) this might be a bit much, but it's it's just me and I gotta I gotta let it be, right? We we already threw out perfectionism at the top of the podcast. I'm just gonna let it go. Um all right, so for podcasting, it's those two podcasts and how story works. Uh, but as I'm working in seasons now with all of these podcasts, which I absolutely love, it does give me a chance to dabble in other things. I don't have anything on the docket yet, uh, because I've got a lot of stuff going on this year, but uh, but there's definitely a lot of stuff that I'm thinking about. Um and and there may be other uh offerings from Tripperish Media coming your way uh, throughout the year. All right, so what else? Oh, uh the year of writing magically. Um probably you've already heard the uh the commercials for it that are going to run in the show. Um but I I cannot tell you Enough how incredibly excited I am about this workshop. This is the workshop that I wanted to take and couldn't find, so I built it. Um it's 10 months. It runs from March to December 2023. Um applications are open until February 12th, year of com. You can go find that there. Uh the workshop is filling up, so I recommend you check it out uh, as soon as you can. Um and if you can apply, like apply, it's going to be amazing. I am super excited. And here are my favorite things about it. It is a long form fiction workshop. So novels, screenplays, stage plays, whatever you're working on, the workshop is both form and genre agnostic. Is agnostic the right word? I always say form agnostic. But I got I, I, I kind of feel like, you know, I'm pretty sure I don't think it means what you think it means, right? You know. So uh okay, let me let me look up the definition. As Dr. Kelly Jones says, define your goddamn terms, right? Um, agnostic is a noun. A person who believes that nothing is known or can be known of the existence or nature of God or of anything beyond material phenomena. A person who claims neither faith nor disbelief in God. I believe in all forms and all genres. So yeah, this is the wrong word. I've been using the wrong word like this whole time, but uh, oh, well, any, any form or genre is welcome in the workshop. Uh, plus the whole point is that we are writing in community. Oh my God, writing in community. I, I cannot recommend it enough. I cannot recommend enough community in general. Um, but this means we're going to have chat boards and mutual support, a nurturing environment where no critical feedback is accepted until the second revision. I'm so excited about training people to get out of the rip it to shreds mindset. That is one of my favorite things to do. I'm very excited about that. Um, And we're going to go through like full discovery process, full drafting process, two revision cycles. So at the end of the year, you've learned to lean into your strengths, your confidence has been bolstered, your magic affirmed, and you'll have a final project ready to go out to agents, editors, publishers, producers, producers, it's so exciting. And I can't wait to see what the alumni of this workshop end up doing. Um, And I'm also very excited about building a strong writing community, um, which is something I've I've kind of missed. Like I used to be a member of RWA and had a lot of writing community there. It had a lot of problems, which is why it, you know, crashed and burned and, and has gone down in like flames. Um, But I miss that. I miss having that community of people. And so year on year, as I start doing this workshop annually, I want to start building that up. So we have a space for alumni and um, we have a message board for so anybody who's taken the workshop can access that message board and talk to p- new people taking the workshop, et cetera, et cetera. I'm so excited. I, I cannot even tell you. year of writing magically.com. Seriously, this is going to be awesome. Um, okay. What else am I doing? Uh, well, I'm going to be writing my own novel this year with part of the workshop. So I'm really excited about that. Um, and I am moving again in town. So it's not like the cross country move that I did last year. Uh, But we have family that's going to be moving in with us in late spring. Um, So we're leaving my wonderful tiny little baby apartment that is easy to clean uh, and getting a bigger house. But I'm excited for that. Because again, a community like I cannot tell you this year for me has been the year of recognizing the value of community and deprogramming a lot of the things that I've been trained to believe um, about how we live and how we're supposed to live. I think that the way that we are trained to live in isolation from each other um, and to be separate from each other is um, is antithetical to the way that humans are supposed to live. We're supposed to support each other. We're supposed to be there for each other. And you can't live with toxic people. I mean, if it was down to me living alone or living with my family of origin, I would absolutely be living alone. But these are people in our family that are not toxic. And then I'm very excited. We're gonna have three generations under one roof. I, I cannot even tell you how jazzed I am about that being a new experience for me. So anyway, I you know I just personally think that there should be as many people living in a house as a house can possibly handle, um, as long as everybody is, again, not toxic. (laughs) But the bottom line about that is, yes, it's a change I want to make. I'm happy to make it, but it's a lot. So How Story Works, this podcast that I'm starting now, season five, right, uh, will be a once a month podcast. Um, But it's going to be good because of course it will. I'm doing it. So that's it for the business end of things. We've covered where we are. We've covered where we're going. And I guess it's time for a short break. And I'll be back with my analysis of Alice Wu's The Half of It. All right. Okay. So I have to say, if you haven't seen the half of it yet, hopefully you have, uh, but this is your opportunity to not be super spoiled because, of course, I am going to be spoiling the hell out of it in this discussion. Uh, we just finished How Story Works Conversation Season three, which was about structure. So I'm really going to be focusing on structure today, but also talking about a lot of things within the story and, and the story movement. Um, and I also think that, like, this is a great movie. You should watch it. I want all the pennies, the streaming pennies to go to Alice Wu because she did a great job with it it's on Netflix in the United States and I don't know where it is elsewhere Um, but wherever you are hopefully you can find it on a streaming service Um, and if you can't get to the movie or you just don't care about all the spoilers and still want to listen, that's great. But I wanted to give you all a chance to duck out now, save the podcast and come back to it later. All right. So the first thing that I want to say, I mean, from now on, before every craft analysis, I want to say in Thunderdome between creator and critic, creator wins every time putting new things out into the world is a sacred endeavor. And it is one of the most human and beautiful things that you can do and talking about it in a way that um, is critical. Critical but respectful um, is something that I really want to do. I have been a shitty critic in the past, um, and I would like to make up for that karmically by changing the way in which I do things. I think I have been doing this as much as possible in the last few years. Um, But I'd really like to take a moment to thank writer and director Alice Wu and her entire creative team for making this movie, and I hope that any criticisms I make are taken with a full understanding of my deep respect and gratitude for this creative work. That said, um, let's go ahead and talk about analysis, right? I think that craft analysis is really, really valuable to writers and creatives because it gives you a chance to look at what other people have done and learn from it, both the good and the not so good. And that's completely fine. Um, but before you analyze any story, and this goes double or triple for your own <laughs> Um, the very first step is to write down and acknowledge the magic in that story, because the magic is what you must preserve at all costs, even if it means bending the craft to accommodate for it. Think about it you don 't want to change a dancer to accommodate the stage; you change the stage, and that 's okay. you can do that and and I would say ninety nine percent of cases craft and magic can work together. They're meant to work together. Um, the whole purpose of craft is to elevate magic. Um, so they they harmonize naturally. Um, but when it comes right down to it, if you got to bend, you bend the stage. Um, so without knowing who the dancers are, without knowing what the magic is that you're going to be supporting, um, you cannot analyze for craft. You cannot figure out what to fix. You can't do anything. So that is the absolute first step in any critical process, most especially of your own work. Okay, so starting with magic for the half of it, I think that the big magic lies in the character work. Ellie, Paul, Mr. Chu, Aster, even, even Trigg, I think it has moments, but they're all really beautifully drawn characters. And it is about the interaction of these characters and the ways in which they all push each other to grow. Um, I think is just beautifully, beautifully done. Um, you know, Trigg is probably the closest of all of them to caricature, um, but he's still sweet and lovable. He's just, you know, very, very new Right. Um, and, and I, I, I enjoy him. I enjoy him. He's, you know, I get why he's not right for Aster. I get why he is sometimes the butt of the joke. Um, but I also just kind of like him. And I think that he's, he's a lot of fun to work with. Um, but really, I think the magic here is that it's a, it's Cyrano de Bergerac love story that goes in a completely different direction. Um, but is, is so incredibly warm and loving. And love is the absolute center of this whole thing. Everything in the half of it is about love and about loving people and about how to love people and how to understand love. All of that is a big part of the magic. And so you want to be able to preserve that. Um, and the love story being told here between Ellie and Paul is absolutely paramount. That is the core of this movie. And without it, the whole thing would crumble. So the Ellie and Paul relationship is one of the most sacred parts of the magic that you really need to preserve, no matter what. All of that said, uh, nothing's really broken in half of it. (laughs) Like the half of it, it can't, it's not a great example of learning how to fix stuff uh, because like I said, there's nothing really broken. I might be able to squeeze out a couple of small quibbles. uh, The big public display of feels in the middle of the church at the end is um, it, it kind of veers into farce for me. And I feel like that's not the tone of this story. Um, but honestly, even that doesn't bother me that much. Um, so I'm going to start out by mapping out the structure beats because we've been talking about structure. Um, and I'm going to just roll from there. All right. So the half of it was a movie released in 2020. Uh, the writer and director are the same, Alice Wu, and you know how I love it when we have a really condensed, efficient, creative team. I think the more people messing with the soup, usually the worse the soup is. Um, so I really love that we have a writer and director all in one. Um, and the movie stars Leah Lewis as Ellie Chu, Daniel Demer as Paul Munsky, Alexis Lemire as Aster Flores, and Colin Chow as Edwin Chu. Uh, really, really great core cast, and I love them all. All right, so talking about the structure, um, this is kind of funny. When I first started watching the half of it. Um, I saw like what I thought was an emerging five act structure and I was so excited. I was like, yay, yeah, finally, I get to talk about something other than a standard three act structure. Uh, but then as I started mapping everything out, remember the acts are really defined by the relationship of the protagonist to the central narrative conflict. It turns out it was three acts. So, <laughs> you know, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I was just kind of excited about talking about something new. I will find something that is not done in a three-act structure, you know. Um, there's lots of stuff out there that isn't. Um, but I just, like, most of the stuff I end up talking about ends up being in this realm, and that's fine. Um, but the reason why you see the three-act structure, like, so often in things like novels or um, or screenplays um, is because a five-act structure in that space, like, this is a 90-minute movie. Five acts in a 90-minute movie might be a little frenetic. Um, and I think that the three-act structure gives each movement of Ellie's progress through her central narrative conflict a chance to breathe, a chance to escalate, the building of the tension. Like, you want to take the time to smell those narrative roses, you know? Um, so I think that three acts is absolutely appropriate for this movie. I just got a little excited and a little ahead of myself, that's all. Um, I love that this is a 90-minute movie. Um, this movie books right through this whole story, and I absolutely love it. Just enough time to feel all of the moments. It definitely doesn't rush, um, but it doesn't sit for too long either. I don't think that there's a point in this movie where I got bored and looked at um, how much time was left, and that is always an indication of a pacing problem. If you are ever, like if you're uh, beta reading something for somebody or if you're trying to do this kind of analysis, always pay attention to the page or the minute point where you stop paying attention, where your, your mind wanders off, where and that is always something to look at. And that's when you want to take a look at the pacing. Um, and we'll talk about the pacing in just a second. But now uh, the first thing that you really need to do once you've protected the magic, right, once you have taken your narrative bubble wrap and just wrapped it around all of those magical things that you want to preserve, is take a look at the central narrative conflict and make sure that you understand what that is. So the central narrative conflict that i have tracked here for ellie is an internal conflict um ellie lost her mother um like i don't know she's about 16 17 i guess at this point and her mother died i think when she was 13 so it's been about five years um she lost her mother who she loved dearly um and in her grief has kept all love at a distance, right? Because grief is love. Grief is the inevitable consequence of love. Um, And so if you have one, you have to have the other. So Ellie's kind of kept her distance. She's also kind of lost her father, who is, you know, still present in her life, but he is sad. He's depressed. He's not running the train station. She has to run that while going to school, while making money to keep the lights on. Um, It's a lot for Ellie. And and she has like slid into an avoidant posture where she just does not want to love because the cost of it so far in her young life has been incredibly high um that said she's also fascinated by love we open the entire story the first thing is her talking about love and pondering about its essential nature um but When we're looking at this central narrative conflict, this internal conflict for her, which is where a character wants two mutually exclusive things, Ellie wants to be safe. And she also kind of wants to take that risk and have that love and understand that love. So those are the two forces that are pulling on her throughout this movie. Um, Quickly, I'm going to I'm going to dip into pacing because there's nothing broken here. So there's not that much to talk about. Um, But this movie is is I would say, like, kind of perfectly paced. Again, I've watched the movie, I don't know, three, four, maybe five times. I've watched it a lot. It's really, really great. Um, and, uh, and I've never had a moment where I paused it, got bored. Maybe a little bit when Ellie and Aster are in the swimming scene, the swimming hole scene. That's the closest I get to, to that. But for the most part, like I, I don't get bored during this. Um, so act one is 28 minutes. Act two is 35 minutes. Act three is 25 minutes. Um, so it's basically kind of like perfectly paced. You know, it works out really well. And again, as we're breaking things down into acts, right? An act tracks Uh, the relationship of the protagonist to the central narrative conflict. So during each act, we're going to see slow escalations that push our character into, ideally, an active choice that changes their relationship with the conflict and then sends them into the next act. So act one is Ellie's resistance, right? She is completely resistant. She opens talking about love, telling the Aristophanes myth, saying that, you know, humans don't need the gods to mess up love for them. They've really got that covered. Um, And she's trying to figure out what her thesis is on love. But what's really Really fun is that she's doing this under cover of anonymity, under somebody else's identity. This is a paper. This is her job. She writes papers for other students. Now her teacher, you know, already knows who's writing it, but Ellie is writing in her head as that person. So there is a distance between herself, even when she's writing and pondering about love, she does it under cover of somebody else's identity. And what I love, too, is that Ellie finishes the opening of her story with a statement. This is not a love story, which of course it is. But then she follows that up with a qualifier or not one where anyone gets what they want. And the thing that I love about this is that what she's describing is a romance. At the end of the romance, everyone gets what they want. Love stories hold no such guarantee um and love stories also do not have to be about a romantic love or a sexual kind of relationship love stories happen in every vector from one human to another every axis of connection from one human to another a love story can live in that space um, and that's why i love love stories they've just got so much versatility and they and they always kind of talk about this very essential human experience of loving and how love works. Also, what she's saying is it's not a love story where anyone gets what they want. And I think that that opens up a space for us to kind of ponder the idea that your job as a writer is not to give people what they want. It's to give people what they need. (laughs) I first heard that from Joss Whedon, who is a a creator with a lot of problems. And I get that. Um, But also two things can be true at once. Um, And he's also right. Um, Giving people what they need is what the role of fiction is, and so that's kind of our job, and that's not always aligned with what it is that they want. Um, but Act One for Ellie is about resistance, right? Um, she resists the teacher telling her to go to college. She resists Paul's job offer to write love letters to Aster for him. She even resists Aster, who she is clearly entranced by, um, and only actually speaks to her by accident when they bump into each other in the hallway, and then only because Aster asks her questions. If it wasn't for Aster investigating Ellie, uh, Ellie would have only said, my name is Ellie Chu, right? Um, and then. She only writes the letter for Paul out of financial coercion. She wouldn't have done it otherwise. So this is an active choice that she makes, but it's not a free active choice. It is an active choice under duress, under financial coercion. And that's not the same thing. So Ellie's relationship to the conflict, which is about leaning into love and risking that grief, or standing apart and being safe, manifests as resistance until Aster shows some interest and responds to Paul's text. Then Ellie leans in a little and has some fun. Uh, they do the collaborative art project together. They flirt. And Ellie's really starting to enjoy investigating this relationship with Aster. But just like the papers, it's done undercover of somebody else's identity. She's not risking If Aster decides she's not into it, Ellie can say, well, you know, it's Paul, right? She didn't know it was me, so she couldn't have been into me. And she's not risking that grief to the extent of, of what you do when you actually put your own heart on the line. And when the date goes badly with Paul... And, uh, Ellie is pretty sure that Aster's not into it. Ellie's like, I'm out. I'm done. This is it. You know, we're not doing this. And she retreats back into her resistance. So even through all of this, as she's moving kind of closer, sort of leaning toward like the acceptance of love and its, you know, ensuant grief, it's guaranteed ensuant grief. Um, she's, she's really doing it very carefully and still staying within this safe, resisted space. Um, but then after the date, when Aster is still intrigued, like Ellie at that point knows that Aster is intrigued by her because Paul has not done anything to intrigue a girl like Aster. Um, and at that point, Paul says, I'll pay you double. Let's keep going. And Ellie says, I'll do it for free. And Paul says, why would you do that? And that is a moment for Ellie where she is actively engaged. She is leaning toward love and the potential for grief. And that's what moves us into act two, right? So our inciting incident to get into the anchor scenes in act one is when Paul asks her to write the love letter for him and she says no, right? So that's when this starts when she's really being engaged because he's asking her to write a love letter to the girl that she likes, so that is personal. Like, that is deep within. She is resisting that love. She's not resisting because it's a love letter, you know, and that's not within her ethical wheelhouse. She is resisting because it is a love letter written to the girl that she likes that puts her heart at risk. But then we move through all of these events of the first act. At the end of the first act, she says, I'll do it for free. This is the moment that she's engaged. This is the moment that we take that active choice and we turn into act two. Um, again, act two runs about 35 minutes. Um, Ellie is fully leaning into flirting and playing with Aster. She is getting more invested in Aster, but she's also staying safe because she's doing this all under the cover of Paul's identity. So her Cyrano de Bergerac, you know, um, activity is being hidden because she is so scared. And that is the core of the Cyrano de Bergerac story. That is why we love it. Because it is so complex and crunchy, and it always comes down to Cyrano's lack of confidence in himself to be able to get rock San, right? Who in this case is, is mapped to Aster. But what I love the most about all of this is that we take that classic Cyrano structure and we flip it on its head because without even realizing it, Ellie is falling in love with Paul. Now, when I say that, of course, I don't mean romantic love. That's not what this love story is. There are many kinds of love, of course, and we become so obsessed with romantic love and sex as the only true expressions of love for a lot of reasons. I'm not going to go into it. it's a big chunk of it is because of the patriarchy, yada, yada, yada. Um, but the thing that I love about that is that because we're so focused on Ellie and Astor, and that is the central love and that is the central relationship that we are kind of trained to look at in a Cyrano de Bergerac story, um, the The love expressions between Ellie and Paul creep up on us, just like it did on Ellie. We didn't see it coming. At least I didn't. Um, But of course, as we know, no mistake... This is the love story between Ellie and Paul. So Ellie and Paul are actively falling in friend love while both of them have their eyes on Aster, which I freaking love, right? Um, so they're training for the dates, which is adorable. They're in the school bus, which is the classroom. I love all of that. But one of the things I love the most about this is that during this training montage and during the entire movie, we are constantly seeing Paul chasing after Ellie. Right. So the visuals are Ellie's on her bike. Paul is running. Um, we know that Paul plays football. That's part of the excuse that they have for telling Astor they got to wait three weeks for the second date so that they can do this training. And we have Paul always, always, always running. Right. And, and, and it isn't until, you know, it's probably about the middle of the movie that he is finally able to overtake Ellie on her bike. Right. I love the visuals of that. I love the way that we hit that running beat over and over and over again throughout this until we finally end on it. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but it's just one of those little moments, those little details that I absolutely love and that this movie has by the dozen. During this act as well, um, you know, we're seeing like, you know, Paul is sharing with Ellie about his taco sausage, which seems ridiculous. Then he comes to her house. He comes to her house and he cooks it for her and for her dad. And you can see by their expressions, like, this is good. This is legit good, you know? Um, she also goes to his house and sees his family who are, you know, all like shouting at each other over the, the kitchen table. It is complete chaos and the absolute opposite of what Ellie's home life is like, which is very, very quiet. Her dad is very quiet. They're always just watching these old movies and they often aren't even looking at each other. You know, and then Paul comes in and he brings this element, this energy that kind of balances out that space. And he develops a love relationship, not just with Ellie, but with her dad, which I absolutely love. And like my favorite thing is when he's like, hey, Ellie's dad. I mean, it's just it's so cute. Um, and then so we see this relationship developing. And at the same time, she's also continuing the discussion and the, the intellectual connection with Aster. Um, And then as she's texting Aster, she's realizing that Paul's a good guy. And she tells Aster, you should be with a good guy. Um, And wanting what's right for Aster, wanting for Paul what he wants, like, that's love. That is the beginning of love. This is creeping up on Ellie without her being able to to really see it. Um, And even though... The the conclusion of this, if it were to be that Paul and Astor would be together, um, Ellie would lose out on that. But the people she loves would win. And that's love in a movie that is obsessed with defining love the selflessness of a choice where you want what's best for the people you love, even if it comes at your own personal cost, like that's about as much of, an, of a definition of love as as I that's mine, right? You know, that's when I know that I love somebody, if I'm willing to take a hit so that they can have greater happiness. Meanwhile, so Paul and Aster kiss, right, um, which is something that he was not supposed to do, but he did, right? Um, and in this moment, as they're having this discussion, Ellie is not jealous, and she's not angry. She's curious. How do you know when a girl wants to be kissed? Right. And Paul tells her it's a look. Um, and of course, like the correct answer is you ask her, you know? Um, but that's a discussion for another time. These are kids. Like I get it. Um, but now at this moment, Like we have another complication coming in that we see Paul while he's taking the garbage out from the restaurant where he works, which is across from Ellie's house. Ellie is up in a room playing on a guitar, a song that she wrote, which is beautiful. And as that sound is like wafting down at Paul, he's just standing there staring at her window. Um... Paul is starting to fall in love with Ellie, like not friend love, like real love. And so that adds another layer of escalation. And again, like when I was talking about escalation, it's not always that that things get worse or that the antagonist gets mad and throws a bomb or whatever, you know, like it is a rising tension. It is a rising complication. If escalation is something that you have trouble kind of wrapping your mind around, because for some stories, especially like this one, an escalation is arising in complication, right? So here we have all of these love vectors shooting all over the place. And then Paul throws another one into that mix. And here we have him starting to fall in love with Ellie. Really, really beautiful. Just this one little quiet moment. You can miss it if you're not paying attention. Um, But it's really, really nice. And from this point, Paul and Ellie are spending time together even when it's not about Aster and it's not about training for the date. Like he goes clothes shopping with her to pick out her outfit for the recital. Um, After the recital, He takes care of the party during the recital. He's the one who gives her the guitar and gets her away from the piano, which is her safe space, right? Because she plays that at church all the time and gives her the guitar, which she plays by herself. And she sings her song. That is Ellie moving out of safety and into risk. Um, Then they go to the party and she gets drunk. He takes care of her. He puts her to bed in his bed. He sees all the letters. He picks up her backpack to move it, sees all the letters that she has been writing. As him selling his taco sausage to food critics and magazines and newspapers and all of that, um, that, again, like, is such a great way to show love, right? Because she didn't tell him about that. She didn't get his permission. <laughs> she didn't uh, get credit for it. Um she didn't ask for credit for it. She did it just because she loves him and believes in him. That is such a wonderful little moment. Um and then the next morning, Paul has to run, I think he's going to like uh, practice, and Aster arrives at Paul's house, basically finds Ellie hopping out of his bed, right? Um and Ellie says, "No, no, no, he's really into you. I'm just giving him books to read so that he can woo you better." Um and Aster's like, "Let's go hang out," right? Um and Ellie Having to lean into her thing for Aster as herself by spending actual time with Aster. That is the next big shift in Ellie's relationship to the conflict. And again, here we are at the turn of the axe and Ellie is making an active choice. She is choosing. She could have made an excuse and been like, no, I can't go and just let Aster leave. But she didn't. She chose to spend that day with Aster as herself. That moves us into act three, right? But before we go to act three, let's talk about the anchor scenes here, right? Um so we had our engaging in the conflict at the end of act um one when Ellie is basically like straddling the boats. <laughs> like imagine safety and risk are two boats in a lake, and she is straddling them both, and they're getting further and further apart and she's <laughs> gonna fall in, you know. Um so that's where we were at the beginning of act two. In the the midpoint reversal, um in the be in the midpoint reversal in the middle of Act 2, I think, is when Paul seems to be falling in love with Ellie. I think that's when we add an extra layer of complication that kind of escalates everything, right? Um, so that is our anchor scene in the middle of Act 2. And at the end of Act 2 is the no way out but through, right? That's our turn into Act 3. That is the act of choice. And Ellie chooses no way out but through. She chooses to go with Aster as her herself, which is something she can't slink out of later. She is representing herself. Um, Of course, not completely because she hardly speaks at all but she chooses to go and I think that that is a huge 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 big deal for her and it is a movement forward into Act 3 where her relationship with this conflict is definitely starting to lean into risk Um, so Aster and Ellie spend the day together Um, Ellie has to be her real self with Aster although she is still straddling both you know both canoes in the lake (laughs) she's still straddling them both she is definitely still in resistance Um, and we can see that in that Aster strips down jumps right into the waterhole. hole um, Ellie goes in not just fully clothed but in all her layers um, which I thought was really great um, and then Aster starts talking and in this scene we see Aster struggling with her insecurity with her lack of confidence her lack of certainty um, and she talks about Paul not being safe and she's not talking about Paul, real Paul, is not being safe. The not safe part of Paul is Ellie. It is the part of, of quote unquote, Paul, of the the perceived, Aster's perceived identity of Paul um, that is unsafe because he, Ellie, is pushing Aster to explore and be her full, true self. And Aster isn't ready for that. Aster is very uncomfortable with that. And then she talks about Trig being safe because Trig, her family loves Trig. Trig goes to church. Um, Trig is going to propose to her. They're going to get married and they're going to have a safe life. And then Aster says, he's just so sure maybe that's love. And again, like this entire thing earlier in the movie, we have a moment with Paul where he says, well, isn't love the effort that you put into somebody? Um, and here Aster is defining it as certainty. And I love that everybody's always trying to define love, that that is kind of the touchstone that we always return to. And everybody has a definition of love. Later on in the movie, her dad, uh, Mr. Chu, defines love as not wanting someone to change, um, which I think is maybe a, a definition of love that needs a little uh, inspection. But I mean, it's interesting, though, the way that we're constantly pulling through everybody defining love in a different way. And what I find so interesting about this is that Ellie comes home from her date with Aster, right? To find that Paul has been hanging out with her dad. Paul made dinner and left a plate in the microwave for Ellie. Like, oh God. I mean, I love this kid. I love this relationship. I love all of it. And then we move on to the football game in which Paul makes a touchdown because he's running so fast. And why is he able to run so fast? Because he's been chasing Ellie this whole time. And I absolutely love that running beat. It's so great. Then we have him kissing Ellie by the vending machine. And of course, Aster sees this and runs off. Um, This leads into our dark moment where Paul finally sees Ellie, like really sees her um, and realizes that Ellie is in love with Aster and says, it's a sin. You're going to hell. Let's hold that for a minute. Uh, you know, I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, then we get to the climax in the church, right? The moment that Ellie is finally able to take a risk and let people see her, especially Aster, finally see her. And that is her moving out of resistance and and toward risk, toward love toward grief. So finally, the, the reason this is the climax is because it resolves, right? It resolves the central conflict, which is, which is resistance and safety versus risk in leaning in. Um, and Allie finally chooses the part of her that wants love, that wants to lean in, um, that wants to stop resisting, finally stands up and speaks because Trigg proposes ridiculously to Aster. And Aster ridiculously says yes. And Ellie stands up at the church and says, no, absolutely not. Is this the boldest stroke that you can make? And she reveals to Aster what has been going on the whole time, that she has been Paul this whole time, and that the person that Aster has been falling for is actually Ellie. So now the part of Ellie that is able to risk love has won. Right, so the conflict is over. That's why this is our climax scene, because we have a winner. Um, then we move into resolution. I love the resolution scenes in this movie. Um, I love the scene with Aster and Ellie. I love Aster continuing to be unsure, but being playful about it and choosing to go to art school and not marry Trigg. Um, And she says, you wait in a couple of years. I'm going to know. I'm going to know who I am. I'm going to know what I want. Um, And I love that Ellie's about to walk away. And then she tosses her bike down Runs to Aster, kisses her full on the lips, and says, see you in a couple of years. And let me tell you why I love this so much. One, Aster is not a prize to be won. Aster is her own prize. And she is figuring out who she is. And that is her prize. And Ellie is not interested in Aster until Aster knows what she wants. See you in a couple of years. Right? That is love. Like, Ellie is into this girl. Ellie wants this girl. And yet, because this is what's best for Aster, she says, I will see you when you're ready for me. Right? And then just walks away. It's the coolest frickin' thing. I love it. Absolutely love it. Um. Then we have Paul and Ellie saying goodbye. And here's the thing. The last scene of any story is going to tell you what that story is really about. And we end on the love story between Paul and Ellie. Um, here we have her getting on a train, right? And in the middle of the, the movie, we saw a scene from a movie they were all watching together where a girl was on a train and this stupid guy was running outside the window like an idiot chasing after her like that's ever going to be a thing, right? And then the girl is crying and she's all into it. It's such a display. And Ellie freaking hates it. In the middle of the movie, she hates that beat. But here she is. She says goodbye to Paul. She gets on the train. And Paul, who has been chasing after her the entire movie, runs outside the window of the train for as long as he can. And Ellie looks back at him. And for the first time in this movie, she cries, right? She is leaving love. She is feeling grief. But she's able to do it and cry and smile at the same time. And it's so amazing. It makes me cry every time I watch it. It makes me cry talking about it to you. It is such a wonderful movement. She is no longer resisting love. She let it catch her. And I just think it's fantastic. It is almost a perfect movie. Right. Almost a perfect movie. Um, All right. So the theme of this movie, like what is love trying to define love? Really, really neat. Something to think about. Something philosophical. I love a crunchy philosophical theme. A question at the heart of a story. Absolutely love that. Um, The great stuff that I love in this movie. I mean, I've talked about like I love that central what is love philosophical question. I love that everybody answers it differently. I love that it never gets answered in a way that the text is saying this is it, you know, because love like people are a lot of different things all at once. Um, I love the representation here. I mean, I'm neither Chinese nor queer. Um, I don't, I can't speak to the representation from that perspective. If you are part of either of those identities and want to give me your opinion on it, I would love to hear it, record that for me. I'd love to play it in a future uh, episode of How Story Works. Um, but I, from my, per- like what I see is, is wonderful. I think that all of these characters are really, aside from Trigg, who's kind of playing the stupid guy, Like, you know, um, I think that the characters are wonderfully drawn. Um, I think that there's uh, lovely interactions between them. And I think that we acknowledge race. Um, We're not pretending we're not being colorblind about it. We are acknowledging the effects that it has, but we're also talking about other things at the same time. I love all of that. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm missing things. And if I am, by all means, there's nothing I love more than learning something new. So please, by all means, share your perspective on that. Um, I love the obvious unseen is kind of, um, I would say like if, if the question about what is love is a gold thread sort of running through the fabric of this piece, I think that the obvious unseen is the silver thread, right? Um, Ellie says people only see what they're looking for. And this movie has a lot of people not seeing what's right in front of them. And we have. Have them talking about, like when Paul knows that Ellie is gay and he's talking to Mr. Chu, he's not telling Mr. Chu anything except that you have to see her. You have to see all of her. And uh, Mr. Chu, does that's when he defines love as not wanting the other person to change at all, you know, um, and realizes that maybe it's it's quite more than that. Um, so. Let's go to this thing where Paul kisses Ellie um, and says, you know, when realizing that she is in love with Aster, that she is gay, uh, says, it's a sin. You're going to hell. Um, originally, I hated that. I absolutely hated that because it didn't feel real for Paul. Um, but watching it again, um, as I watched it more, I realized that he wasn't saying it in condemnation. He wasn't saying like, it's a sin. You're going to hell. You're dirty. You're awful. He was sad for her. He was worried for her. He was fearful for her because he had grown up in a world that told him that that's what happens to people who are gay. Um, and so because he says that out of ignorance, but also out of love, um, out of the combination of ignorance and love, um, and then immediately puts himself to unlearning anything that tells him That Ellie is not a full, wonderful, loved person. Um, I love the unlearning. I love modeling unlearning. A lot of us out here in the world have a lot of unlearning to do. Um, and seeing it modeled, even, you know, in this little moment, we're not hitting it too hard. You know, we're not making a huge big deal out of it. And Paul doesn't get a cookie for it. <laughs> you know, um, he just does what he needs to do. He unlearns it. And then he speaks up in the church saying love is love and people who love, love who they love. And it's fine. And then we see his mom who completely accepts when she thinks that he's gay. Um, and when he says no, but he wants to make a taco sausage instead of the traditional family sausages that they've been making, she loses her shit on him. I kind of love that. Um so given the entire context of this moment, I've actually learned to appreciate it. I did hate it the first time I saw it. Um, OK, so so here's the thing. Like one of the things that I learn the most from with stories when I do analysis is I, I think about the stuff that you could fix. Right. Um, and I don't have a lot. For the half of it, like, I think the half of it is as close to a perfect story as, as you get. Um, I absolutely love everything that's going on here. Um, but the church scene is probably my least favorite part of the movie. Um, Trig opens this 18 year old kid, you know, with a love is reading from Corinthians, which is probably like the tritest, you know, it's the reading that everybody goes to, right? And it's it's like a piece of gum that has been over chewed. It's kind of lost a lot of its appeal, I think, um, and has become something that is a uh, uh, that just just isn't as powerful, I think, as maybe it, it has been in the past. Um, but he he takes this cliched reading about love and love is faithful, love is kind, love is patient, all of that stuff, and follows it f- with a proposal to Astor. In the middle of church, which, you know, when I'm talking about love being the thing that we do unseen, love being... The stuff that we do for someone without asking for anything back, without expecting a reward, without expecting to get credit for it, that it's not about credit, it's about doing what's best for them. Um, this is the opposite of that. This is performative love. This is love that is meant to be demonstrated for other people, not even the person who's the object of the affection. This is not about Aster. This is about performing for this town, performing the role that he is supposed to, to play. Um, and then Aster says yes. And all of that is ridiculous enough because Aster saying yes in that moment. I understand that she is unsure. Um, but her saying yes in that moment after the conversation that she had with Ellie feels a little bit off to me. Um, then we have Paul stand up in the middle of church, right? And starts talking about how people love and, and is really talking, of course, about Ellie and knowing that Ellie is gay and supporting her love for whoever she loves because love is, Love is the thing. Love is the shit, right? You got to have it. And how you love is how you love. And it's OK because it's love, right? Um, so I love he's demonstrating his love for Ellie, his ability to unlearn. I do like that. But the way it's done, this should be, again, not performative for everybody there. It should be private between him and Ellie because this is about him and Ellie. And he needs to say that to her. After what he said to her, he needs to say this to her, to her and saying it in front of people for her so that she knows does have also a sense of i'm standing by this like i am public in my admiration and love for you um but it just feels it creaks a little bit for me um and then we have Ellie whose aster says yes ellie says no you can't do this, and then comes down and says, love is selfish and messy um, and painful. Um, but then she says, love is being willing to ruin your good painting for the chance of a great one, which, you know, calls back to the art, the fun little flirty art project they did together. Um, is this the boldest stroke you can make? Is Ellie saying it was me? It was me, right? I love Ellie's speech. I love all of it. I hate that it happens in the middle of church uh, because everybody's watching and each one of these teenage declarations is becoming this thing that is kind of overtaking the moment. Um, and I, I understand that the public declaration, like the grand gesture is kind of a, um, a long revered trope in, um, romantic comedies. And, um, I think it can die. Like the, the grand gesture is so empty. Um, after all this time of seeing people run through, you know, the rom-com run through New York City at midnight on New Year's Eve, or through the airport, you know, um, all of that stuff, um, does something to create a uh, a spectacle in your story, like a big end piece that feels, um, that feels really huge and like this big moment, this big crescendo, you know, um, and it just doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me here because nothing about this movie leads into any of this and the tone is is leaning into farce and that is not the tone of the rest of the movie so it feels atonal um, I love Ellie's speech um, I love Aster when she learns she figures it all out um, and I'm not in general I'm not a fan of slaps especially because we have women slapping men like it's okay because women are so tiny and weak and men can take a hit um, I don't like that I don't think anybody should be hitting anybody um, but I understand why Aster did it um I kind of like the way she did it. She's not even looking at him. She just slaps her in the face without even looking at him. Um and so like as far as slaps go, this is probably uh my favorite. Um but I really think a verbal slap is better. Um or even a cold shoulder at this point. Just uh knowing, letting him know that she knows what's been going on. And both Paul and Ellie deserve a cold shoulder here. Um, They deserve a verbal slap, at least. Uh, What they did to Astor is really, really terrible. And so the confrontation scene, I think, like, were I, you know, if Alice Wu had come to me and said, hey, give this a read. um, I think what I would have suggested is that the confrontation scene could still be public, but at school. Right. So we're getting to the end of the senior year. We're getting toward the end of the year. So we have a teacher saying, hey. What's everybody doing? What are your plans? What's going on? Right. And so uh, I think if the question to um, going back to the scene where they're in the waterhole, if the question was not Aster, uh, you know, marrying Trigg at the age of 18. Right. If the question was her going to college with him right? And eventually the plan is to get married. Um, but to to follow him rather than follow herself, right? She wants to do art. She wants to be a painter. She wants all of that. Um, and he wants them to go to school and get a safe degree that they can, you know, then use to like have a home and all this kind of stuff. Um, so she's battling between following him and letting him absorb her or being herself. And in the one. Watering hole, she's leaning toward following him because it's safe. He's so certain isn't that love, right? Um, and if at this point, you know, uh, Trig speaks for both of them and says, well, Aster and I are going to go to UW and we're going to, you know, take accounting or whatever, something, something safe, something everybody's always going to need, something that you're not going to be out of business, you know, um, and uh, boring and not what Aster wants. Um, and in that moment, if Ellie says no, right, and then Aster looks at her, um, and while they're staring at each other, <laughs> Paul stands up and gives his speech that has nothing to do with his plans, that has nothing to do with anything, just speaking purely with what he's been thinking as he's looking at Aster and Ellie look at each other, right? So that we have this moment with Paul, it does lean a little bit into farce, but I think also it is consistent with Paul's character, And then Ellie does her speech with, is this the boldest stroke you can make? Right. Um, I think that that in the classroom would give us some of the end scene sort of big moment thing um, that's happening without it looking like Trig is stupid. Somebody's asking him his plans and he's just saying, these are our plans. This is what we have decided. Right. And Aster has gone along with it. Um, And then to move on with the rest of the movie from that. But like, quite honestly, like. That is the only thing I would really change about this movie. I think this movie is fantastic. And I hope that you've enjoyed it. Um, I hope that you've enjoyed the analysis. If you saw something different, like if you saw five acts, I'd love to hear your analysis of that. I really tried. I tried to lean into five acts because I didn't want to do another three X structure just because I've done so many of them. Um, but I think that's what it is. And I think that's fair. And I think it's okay. All right, so that's it for this episode of How Story Works. I hope you like the new format. I hope it being just me for this long isn't too boring. I hope this next month brings you peace and closure on anything from the past and excitement for the future. I hope that you're dedicating enough time to your healing and realizing that your value is not in your productivity and that the joy of your creativity is the only justification you need to be creative. And I hope your car runs great and that your tax refund is rotund and overflowing at the seams. I'll be back next time with something. I don't know yet. And that's okay. I'll be back with something. Send in those Q&As, please. Lonnie at LonnieDineRich.com. Have a great month. And I will see you in February. 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 Jesus, between February and Wednesday. I'm telling you.